rich traditions, real applications. This is Discover the Truth with Garrett Metal Detectors. Hello everyone and welcome to Discover the Truth from Garrett Metal Detectors. I'm your host Tyler Kern. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the program today. Today we're thrilled to welcome Danny Kay onto the show and we're going to learn a little bit more about him. He and I were talking before the show today and he has some absolutely fascinating stories. I can't wait to introduce him to you. So Danny, welcome on the program. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Tyler. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, Danny, let's just dive right into it. Yeah, you're part of a unique organization where you call yourself a conflict archaeologist. Can you tell us yes. a little bit more about that and what that means? Okay, so conflict archaeology uh, is actually one of the new archaeology um, subfields. And um, it used to be known as battlefield archaeology, but battlefield archaeology was very restrictive. It focused based. The, the assumption was battlefield archaeology is just the battlefield. So they, they changed the name to conflict archaeology to encompass, uh, for instance, construction sites, factory sites, uh, prisoner of war camps, uh, you know, areas where soldiers rested or, you know, camped out. So it in includes the whole aspect of war, not just the battlefield. Yeah, that's that's particularly interesting, especially as, you know, in, in let's say, 20th century, you know, a lot of conflicts became where the cities were also battlefields and, and that sort of thing. It kind of brought, uh, I guess, a larger scope of the, the European continent into kind of a war mindset, I guess. And so there are maybe a lot more places where um, where conflict archaeology can be applicable, I would, I would assume. Well, yes, but it's not only focused on, on, on modern day war. It's also mm -hmm. focused, for instance, my uh, professor, he, uh, well, I, I studied at the University of Glasgow in Scotland and my professor's it's pretty uh, well known. He has his own, he had his own TV show and he, he does several other uh, shows for BBC. And his focus is the, the, the war, uh, the conflict between the Scots and the Brits, the English. So, and it could be even going back as far as Romans and pre-Roman era. So there's no, as long as it's conflict, even if it's Stone Age conflict, it could be included in this. That's fascinating. And now you live in Germany uh, for the time being at the moment. Yes. And so um, tell me a little bit about that, just in, in terms of how that relates to the conflict archaeology that you do and um, maybe some of the, the, the metal detecting that, that you do as a result. Well, okay, in Germany, um, until recently, I put it, and since about 2010, metal detecting here was, it's its always been an iffy thing because it's kind of like you're on the borderline because it's kind of illegal because mm. of the high amount of explosives in the ground. So it's always been frowned upon when people go around with metal detectors, but it was most people didn't say nothing about it. Now, since 10 years, the law has changed. Anything that's older than 50 years is considered an, a, a national monument or a heritage site. So um, basically, if you want to uh, metal detect in Germany and you're not licensed by the state archaeologies uh, uh, agencies here, you're doing it illegal. But, um, of course, we're, we're talking about a country that has... Uh, you know, start in 1944, heavy conflict, heavy land battles, heavy aviation battles. I mean, you have crash sites all throughout Germany starting as soon as, as early as 1939. And uh, so that's one of the reasons I went back to to school at the age of 55. I'm like, okay, I'm going to become an official archaeologist. Uh, that way I can, you know, work more within the, in the, in the borders and within the law. Yeah, that's that's particularly fascinating. So, when did you first um, 
kind of become interested in in metal detecting and in conflict archaeology. When, when did this all start for you? Uh, just kind of give me your your origin story. So the background is um, my dad was in the in the English Air Force and he retired in 1968 and. What did he do? He um, he was the first person in the whole area that had a metal detector, and he started working Roman sites. So uh, mm-hmm. he worked um, for the Roman Germanic Museum in Germany. And so, of course, at that age, you know, uh, when, let's say late 70s, I was 14 years old. So I said, well, I can do this too. So I went in the, in the woods with the metal detector, and I came home with hand grenades. So maybe not the best start into the hobby, but it, it's we lived right on one of the hottest battlefields of Germany. So it was it was a natural thing. You couldn't you couldn't go anywhere without finding you know ammunition. And um, and for me, the focus became. Uh, I started looking for airplanes when I was 15 years old. That was mm-hmm. um, my mother actually witnessed a, a plane crash August 42, and she said, "Well, why don't you you know check out that site?" and um, so that was my first airplane. It was an English bomber with a six-man crew. They were all killed. But uh, through a lot of research, I found out who they were, where they were buried. I adopted their graves, and I tended their graves. And it was interesting because when I, when I first saw their graves, I was, well, 15, 16 years old. These guys were old. They were 22, 23 years old. You know, for a 15, 16-year-old, that's yeah. old. Now I go back to the cemetery and I'm like, oh, okay, I'm 56 and you guys are still 22, 23. And that's when you realize for them, life never continued. They never had a chance to have a family, you know, to live their life, you know. Some of them were not even old enough to drink alcohol. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. Kind of puts it all in context. And that kind of brings us to, uh, I guess, the idea of, of when it comes to what you do, um, what's it like to maybe interact with families and, and kind of provide some closure as far as that's concerned? Is, is that a large part of kind of what you do and, and maybe maybe one of the more rewarding aspects of it? I think, yes. The thing is that we... Okay, let me put it this way. We, we started excavating airplanes, MIAs, missing aviators, in 2003, and it was um, uh, it was an uh, Australian Lancaster bomber that crashed in Germany, and we found the three missing aircrew. And that was very rewarding because they actually flew uh, the families, was about seven or eight family members from Australia over for the cemetery, for the funeral. They had an Australian um, chaplain, Australian band. They had bagpipe players. So, and then you get to interact with the families. Hmm. Now, it it always depends on the on again on the condition because you have to look at different countries and what their their mindset is. Because the, for instance, in the U.S., you have the basically the U.S. military tries to find all their missing and bring them back home. Of course, that is a, a very hard task when you consider a loan from World War II, 76,000 missing. Um, for, uh, for that, the, the Commonwealth forces leave their dead in the ground. They consider uh, a burial site, let's say a plane crash site, as a war grave, and they don't want it disturbed. Now, the only way that the reason we dug out the, the three Australians was because um, a dog actually alerted that the dog was out in the woods with his owner for a walk and came out with a bone. Hmm. And so the, the Australian government said, yes, please retrieve our dead because we don't want them to be, you know, desecrated or, you know, mistreated. 
but normally they, they just leave them in the ground. Germans are even worse. The Germans don't, they don't even want to acknowledge the fact that there was a war. So we, you know, if you find a German war dead, it is, it's very hard to get permission to excavate them. But yes, you're right. I mean, I've met families, I've met relatives and it's like you know even after 60 70 years it's like it's it's not that they forgot about it they just put it in the back of their mind but when you then suddenly say hey look we we possibly found your uncle or your father or then it is for them it's it brings old wounds back but the good thing is is once um they acknowledge it and the funeral has taken place then they have closure that they never had before yeah, that's a that's a great point, and I think that closure is a is a large aspect of it. And, and so, Danny, how many MIA recovery cases would you estimate that you've worked on over the course of um, uh, of your career doing this? Well, I've also worked two years um, for a, a government organization recovering. So uh, we have, I've recovered over a dozen um, MIAs in my time, and plus we've provided information for about another eight to ten that we found but we passed it to the the governments responsible for it and let them do the excavations so we know we don't only dig we also do the research we do the the data uh, the data gathering now you've also had your own uh, career in the military um do you feel like that has contributed to your passion for this particular project well i would put it the other way around i think my passion is what got me into the military because mm. well you know if you if you had a father that served 22 years, you've grown up around a battlefield. It's kind of like, hey, I want to be a soldier. You know, I want to do the same thing. I want to experience it. And uh, so for me, that was the next step into it. Uh, in a way, actually, like we talked earlier, the military was, uh, in a way, put a stop on my metal detecting because I was assigned 12 years in the U.S. So, uh, you know, not that many uh, aircraft crash sites from combat. There are a lot of crash sites in the in the Midwest and the West, which were um, Arizona, California. These were sites where there was a lot of training activity, also Florida, mm-hmm. and a lot of planes crashed during training. But it's a different thing in my eyes, a plane crash uh, through training versus combat. Interesting. That's that's an interesting distinction. Um, I, I suppose. And so um, how do metal detectors come into play on, on your projects? How do you go about utilizing metal detectors when it comes to searching for these sites and, and searching for, uh, for MIAs and that sort of thing? Well, the, one of the things is we, we, um, we don't always have aerial reconnaissance photos that show us the exact impact site. Mm-hmm. A lot of times the eyewitnesses, you know, their memory has changed over the perception has changed over 60 70 years so they say yeah it's here but it's not so metal detectors help us basically uh pinpoint the crash site now what we do is we um we use a metal detector to um not only walk the whole area we we have to to determine the whole impact site but we use different types of metal detectors because and this is also interesting the average person metal detecting looks for well you know coins gold you know valuables uh for us it's the exact opposite we actually excavate the stuff that the average person wouldn't want because what's air what's an airplane made out of aluminum and iron so we actually excavate the, the trash so to speak you know and um with that in mind we we use we can use a traditional metal detector to just 
search the whole area. Um, and what we do is we we um, we metal detect. When we get a signal, we place a flag to see the whole debris field, so to speak. We take photos. We uh, I use drones. I use um, mm-hmm. a drone right now to do overhead footage to show the flag so you can see the debris pattern where did the plane come from which direction you can see that on hand of the uh the debris field and that we what we do we also use um magnetometers because magnetometers actually only detect um iron and they're their form of metal detector but what they do is they use the they look for the magnetic field so they can go down six seven eight meters so 20 plus feet and they help us pinpoint where the engine is. For instance, if you excavate an air, a fighter, uh, a single seat fighter, the pilot is normally located in the area. What you want to do is you want to find the engine. You want to find the, the heavy metal parts, which is normally the, the undercarriage legs, the, the armament. And that helps you pinpoint and move your way toward the cockpit. Now, what I'm using lately is... Um, Metal detectors like, for instance, the Garrett ATX, which is um, a PI. So basically, it doesn't. It, it goes very deep, but it doesn't discriminate in the in the traditional sense that you know the the average treasure hunter works. They work very good on aluminum and iron and go very deep. So that is what we're looking for. And also, you have to consider a lot of the fields that we. Some sites are in the woods, uh, but a lot of fi- uh, sites are on a farmer's field. So you're looking at a site that's been plowed possibly up to 60, 70 years. So, you know, the debris is not where it used to be. So we have to get below the plow line to -hmm. get signals. And so we have to use, you know, very good deep detectors that can get down like 20, 30 inches to get past the plow line. Oh, that's interesting. I I had never considered that that possibility before, and so that's that's particularly fascinating. Um, so, Danny, as um, you look kind of back on on the accomplishments of your career, what stands out to you maybe is the most rewarding moment or the most rewarding um, thing that you've gotten to be a part of? Yeah, actually, this is the one that you and I talked about recently. It is mm-hmm. the 2000 case of uh, Lieutenant Paul Mazal, 22 year old American fighter pilot, and um, the Germans were getting ready to uh, put a road over his crash site and contacted us and said, hey, you know, um, there's a crash site here. And so we were given permission by uh, the U.S. military in Germany to excavate the airplane. And it was very, very touching because this pilot was, um, like I said before, he was very well preserved because he was five meters down, so 15 feet in the ground in clay. Uh, he was still in a sitting position with his full flight suit on, his parachute strapped to him. And um, he was um, a couple of months later. We we found him in August of 2005 in December. He was returned to his family. And that was very rewarding because I had the opportunity um, to meet his family. Mm-hmm. I had the opportunity to be the guest speaker at the last unit, the, the squadron reunion. Actually, it was the 406 fighter group. I was at their last reunion in Tucson, Arizona as a guest speaker. And I even met the German pilot that shot him down. So that was really the most rewarding wow. because it, I wrote a book about it because it was just so personal to me. And I did it for the family because I, I wanted something that they could look back on. And I put over, I think I put over 30 photos, 30 or 50 photos in it. I had a lot of original photos of Paul that I got. So it was very rewarding because it, it's like it 
it put a face to the the body you know it put a it put his personality to it mm. and that's the only case we've ever had that was that detailed and so involved but everybody that was involved in it said that was that was the one in a million you know yeah yeah absolutely uh tell us the the name of the book and and it, it, can people find it uh, and that sort of thing <laughs> Well, the, the title is Roscoe Red 3 is Missing, and Roscoe Red 3 was actually his call sign on that last mission. Um, it was on Amazon. Um, I might have to call my um, my printing company and tell them to, you know, put it back on the shelves. But, yeah, right. uh, yeah. you know, uh, if anybody's interested and they can't find it, contact I did. I did buy the last hundred something uh, copies myself because you know a little bit proud about it and a little bit vain. So you know, if you can't <laughs> find it, get with me. You know, I can provide you with one. I can even sign it. <laughs> you, you, you're you're allowed to be a little proud of this moment, uh, Danny. I think uh, I think it's fantastic. Uh, so as, as you look forward, what what are you looking forward to uh, with metal detecting? What what projects do you have coming up that that you're excited about, or what things are you uh, are you enthusiastic about as you move forward? Well, it's actually interesting. Now that I'm actually an official archaeologist, I am getting more involved because other groups are now contacting me. And um, one of the things we're going to be doing is in August, I'll be assisting an excavation of one of the, uh, it's an American bomber. And I'm assisting one of the U.S. universities that is actually um, excavating this, this wreckage for the government. So um, that'll be very interesting. It's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to work with the U.S. government on a, on a site. And um, I'm hoping that will lead, if, if our results are good and our cooperation is good, to, uh, you know, like I say, bring further excavations. Because the U.S. government does about mm, a dozen-plus excavations each year in Europe, so France, Italy, Germany. And so, you know, if our work is good, we might be able to assist them more. And like I mentioned to you, I'm actually moving to Korea this year. So the other focus is changing focus onto the Korean War and uh, MIAs that are still uh, located in South Korea. Well, you're doing some fantastic work, Danny. It's been an absolute pleasure getting a chance to learn thank more you. about it today and uh, and learn more about you as well. So Danny Kay, thank you so much for joining us here on Discovery the very Truth much. from Garrett Metal Detectors. And you have a great day down there in Texas, and I hope it doesn't rain anymore. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Danny. We've had some downright German weather here recently, so, uh, you know, not not very Texas-like. But, but Danny, thank you again. And everyone, thank you for joining us here on this episode of Discover the Truth by Garrett Metal Detectors. We appreciate it very much. Of course, stay tuned for more episodes of the show. We're always talking to interesting people doing amazing things in the world of metal detecting, so you'll want to subscribe and stay up to date with the latest from Garrett Metal Detectors. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or, of course, go to Garrett Metal Detectors website to stay up to date with the latest and stay tuned we'll be back soon with new episodes of the show but until then for my guest today danny k i've been your host tyler kern thanks so much for joining us <laughs>